What if love is what is scary for you? What if intimacy, what if authenticity is what is scary for you? Well, then we've got you going right back into this collapse and guarded and self-protection and freeze response. And so this is where many people don't understand what it actually means to feel safe. We have associated love with safety. And yet for most people, Megan, because of the insecure attachments that we have coming out of our childhood, an element of love and intimacy, connection is actually what is scary for us. And so we, we guard ourselves against that. We don't even let it in. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Everyone has experienced some level of trauma in their lives. Everyone. And I'm sharing this with you before you opt in or out of this interview, because it was one of the most compelling, interesting, funny, light, deep, all of the above in one. My guest today, Dr. Amy Apigian, is a physician turned trauma advocate. She might not even like that term, but it's kind of what I am feeling for her right now. She has a deep personal connection to the idea of trauma and at the same time, a simultaneous fascination with how it embeds itself in our physiology, how it influences our capacity to perform and be resilient adults, and an understanding of how trauma is not always something we remember experiencing. It doesn't have to be something big. It can be an innocuous event that took place early in our lives or or recently in our lives that collided with a fully charged nervous system. The world has moved through a fascinating period over the last two years, and all of us have been triggered on some particular level. Dr. Amy talks to us today about the connection between trauma and its storage in our system, how it influences neurological patterns in our lives, how it embeds coping mechanisms and changes in behavior that influence our ability to reach our full potential. And she also discusses how we can start to disassemble this trauma without having to talk about it, without having to approach it from that traditional psychotherapy, only psychology conversation around feelings, to truly being able to balance out and need to understand that trauma with its influence on our physiology. It was an amazing interview. It is intended for all humans because we are all susceptible to this notion and idea of trauma. It is worth the listen. It's not deep and heavy. It won't be triggering for you. In fact, it's a refreshing approach and lens on something that often we work to avoid. It is truly my pleasure to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Apigian. Dr. Amy Apigian, welcome to, I almost said the Anthropology Podcast, welcome to Impact. I'm so happy you're here. 
This is so good to be with you, Megan. It's always a joy to see what you're doing in the world and to have a conversation with you about something really important. Well, you know, I, I was I was sharing this with you beforehand, but like part of my uh, secret mission in making sure that I had this conversation when we did is that, you know, we're working with a series of interviews right now where we're talking all about resilience, physiological resilience and psychological resilience and spiritual resilience. And, and the whole world has come through a very traumatic period. Some of us are still deeply entrenched in it. You know, I felt strongly and I think you feel strongly. We can't have a conversation around resilience without talking about the elephant in the room, which is addressing trauma. And so we're, we're going to get into the biology of trauma today. And before before we do that, and, and listen, feel free to disagree with me right off the bat. Sure. Yeah, I'll disagree with you right off the bat. I, I, Great. I, I totally Here we go. Disagree. I, I don't think that anybody has had trauma. I don't know what you're talking about. From the very beginning, Megan, I'm, I'm completely disagreeing with you. Amazing. I'm so happy that we both speak fluent sarcasm because <laughs> it is like one of my one of my second languages and I'm fully conversed. Languages. <laughs> it is one of my love languages. I try I, I know. We can we can talk about someone told me once that they're like, oh, sarcasm is just what people do to hide their deep-rooted <laughs> trauma. And I was like, huh. No, I just I I just let my inner dialogue out. But maybe maybe we'll determine that this is like sourced in trauma by the end. Amy, before we we before we go all lost on our tangent, I'd love for you to just share with my listeners a little bit about your your story and your background because you have a compelling personal story. You are in, in been entrenched in in medicine and primary care and you have such a compelling background that enables you to really lead this conversation and all the work that you're doing. And I, and I would love for my audience to have an opportunity to hear that from you. I think everybody kind of looks back at their childhood and is like, oh, things were a little off, but there was nothing that I would say was traumatic about it, that it was abusive or neglect, certainly none of that. And so I was just headed towards a regular career. And I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do medicine. And I always saw myself being, you know, one of those really nerdy, geeky scientist physicians doing the research and diving deep into stuff. And so that's the path that I took. I went to medical school at Loma Linda University, started medical school when I was 21, and also enrolled in the master's in biochemistry program. So I'm doing a master's in biochemistry and medical school. And loving it because that, I mean, that was, that was what I loved. I mean, I love the science. I love to understand things on that cellular level. I was like, that sounds traumatic right there, but (laughs) carry on. I love, okay, carry on. Well, and this is what we need to talk about, right? Like a trauma for one person is not a trauma for another person, Megan. True. Biochemistry was a trauma for me. (laughs) Physics, physics was a trauma for me. Mm, Fair. (laughs) Okay. So then uh, during that period, I actually had a a small space in my life in between finishing up the master's of biochemistry and jumping back into third year of medical school, which is when, at least at that time, in that model, you were going to be starting your rotations in the hospital, in the clinics, and actually seeing patients for the first time. So with that gap, I was like, oh, well, you know what? I'll become a foster parent. And so... I jumped through all of those hoops. I made all these changes to my home. You would not believe all the things that you need to do. And then the call came, right? You you always remember that phone call. There was a couple of kids that they had wanted to place earlier on, but it just didn't seem right until they called and said that they had a four-year-old and a four-year-old Miguel. And he uh, had had a very unstable early childhood in all of those four years. 
But they knew that this was just the perfect placement for him because of, you know, some of the specific issues that that he had. And they just knew that with the love that I had for him, that it would it would turn everything around for him. And it would really start to heal some of the anger and rage and outbursts that he had started to have in these other homes. And so I I said yes. And I still remember that that first day. I still remember the feel of his tiny little hand in my hand. And I did everything wrong, Megan. I did not understand trauma. I did not understand how it affects our biology. I thought it was just how it affects your psychology. And if it just affects your psychology, well, then I can undo that psychology with all of my love. And I loved that kid. I mean, I still do, but kind of is is talking in, in past tense, right? Like there was so much love that I had for him even before he showed up and the preparation that I did. And I just knew and also had been told that love would be what fixed him, you know, what healed him. And it was not so. And there was an initial honeymoon phase. And so for anybody who has adopted or had uh, been a foster parent, they know about that honeymoon phase. And then the real life stuff started to happen. And we're talking about uncontrollable stuff, Megan. At the worst of it, at the extreme, there is a spectrum of behaviors, but certainly at the extreme of it, even at age five, he was expressing desire to kill me and was attempting to kill me. And I saw that my love was actually what was scary for him. And the more that I loved him, the more that I expressed that, the more that I showed that, the worse his behaviors got. And I'm like, this is counter everything that I have known and thought. And so I went, I went searching, Megan. Like I, I remember it was New Year's Eve and I'm down on the floor crying, literally crying. Cause I'm like, okay, I am at the end of my rope. I don't know anything else to do. I had taken him to the best, the best that conventional medicine had to offer, the best child psychiatrist in the area, the best play therapist. And it only made his behaviors worse. I was at my lowest point with him and I was like, okay, I am open to anything that seems to be helping these kids. And I became very open. Up until then, I had been a very closed person probably. (laughs) And all of a sudden, when it involves a kid, you become willing to do anything that will actually help. And so that's that's what completely turned turned me onto a very different path that ultimately changed my career because I actually went into general surgery first did general surgery for three and a half years. And then I, well, I had my own health crash and that certainly influenced it and made the decision that no, like I, this is where my heart is. And given what I have learned and what is still so misunderstood about trauma and it being psychological and that love fixes everything, more and more people are not only getting hurt because of that, but they're, they're actually getting stuck in their healing journey. And so I I felt so compelled to share the piece that I knew at that time. And then since then, I've continued to learn and actually gotten trained in many different trauma therapies as a medical physician. How interesting is that was showing up to all these trainings surrounded by all these therapists. Megan, you would not believe it, right? So I am a scientist. I am a scientist, Megan. I hate talking about feelings. I hate talking <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here they are. And I'm surrounded by therapists. You know, and all they want to talk about is, well, how do you feel about that? 
I'm like, I don't care how I feel about it. Like, I just want to fix this. <laughs> Tell me what Is there a surgery we can do to remove the feeling. Can I get the right knife? Like, what kind of suture do I need? What kind of, you know, tool do I need to cut this out? And then I realized, oh, I don't cut it out. I just rewire the nervous system. Okay, well, what are the tools that I use to rewire the nervous system? And so this is where I've been able to bring in now all of these different tools that have made such a difference. And what I see happening is that not only is it rewiring the nervous system for myself and the people that I work with, but it's accelerating their healing journey. Many people get stuck for years or get stuck at a certain point and they can't seem to just change that pattern that they have of reacting in this way or overeating or emotionally eating when they feel lonely. Like they literally can't seem to stop that pattern. And it's like, well, yeah, because these things are wired into your nervous system and we actually need to go to that level. We have to go down to a cellular level. We can't just talk about things, Megan. Let's just establish early on in, in this conversation, what is your working definition of, of trauma, given that you're like, it is a cellular, psychological, and probably multifactorial experience for somebody? How are we defining it right now? Trauma is anything that for any reason, at that time, overwhelmed your system. And that's why it's so individual. And that's why it's also very much related to what is the state of your nervous system, emotional, biological, physiological, spiritual? What is the state of your nervous system going into that situation, going into that event? Because that will determine whether that will just be a stress for you. Oh my goodness, that was such a stressful thing to go through. Or was it trauma and it overwhelmed? And there's a very specific sequence of events that happens physiologically in response to a trauma that's different than stress. And this is where I see that functional medicine is halfway there, but not all the way there. They've mastered stress, but they haven't mastered trauma. And what they call stress many times is actually trauma. So what happens in a trauma that's different than stress, and this is so important for those, especially who are entrepreneurs, to really get clear on this so that they know in their life what is stressful and what we can support versus what is trauma, traumatic for them. And we've got to approach it differently. And so a trauma has the sequence of you go into sympathetic first and there's always that startle, right? That startle and it can be an email or it can be a car coming towards you. It doesn't matter. It's the startle of a potential threat a potential danger. And our system is programmed to go into sympathetic. And we become hyper alert, hyper vigilant, even down to like our eyes dilating so that we can take in all of our environment. There are changes that happen in our ears so that we can take in all of the sounds so that our brain, amygdala, can very quickly assess in a matter of seconds, how big is this threat? How big is this danger? And is it real? At that moment, our system, again, is programmed in sympathetic to fight or to run. It's a very high metabolic state. And I'm, and I'm speaking more in biochemistry terms for you, Megan, because I know that you just love biochemistry. I do love biochemistry, <laughs> but notwithstanding the fact that it was traumatic. <laughs> yeah, I can hear it in your voice. You just love biochemistry. <laughs> 
Um, I'm with you. I'm with you. (laughs) You're with me, but you're like five feet behind because you're like, no, biochemistry. No. It's okay. This is like a cold plunge of science right now. I'm in it. You're way through this. But I like having these conversations with a fellow doctor because we can go into the physiology of stuff more than Mm -hmm. just the the emotional experience of the event. And so we go into a high metabolic state where our mitochondria are literally at their maximum in terms of energy production because it is going to use all of its resources to fight that danger, to respond to the danger, to respond to the threat. And here is where most people get it wrong. I was even taught this, right? Like we've lumped fight, flight, or freeze all into the same category. And that's not true. Those are very different physiological states. The fight or flight is sympathetic. And that is that first step. And if we stay in sympathetic, it stays as a stress. And after a stress, we come back down into parasympathetic because we have successfully outrun the tiger, responded to the stress. But what has happened is that our system, our nervous system, for lots of reasons that that maybe or maybe not we'll have time to go into, it gets overwhelmed by that threat and by that danger. And it does not feel that it has the resources to successfully respond to that stress. And those resources include our support system. Do we have family? Do we have friends? Do we have someone who's going to stand behind us? have our back, stand beside us, take our hand, those kinds of resources, but also internal resources. Do you have toxins? Do you have a latent viral infection that's that's still lingering? Do you have high copper? Do you have low zinc? Do you have all of these internal factors that are going to actually give the message to your system of we, we don't have the energy that it takes to maintain this high metabolic state and the best chance of our survival best chance of our survival, Megan, is actually to shut down and go into an energy conservation state. Because without energy, we're going to die. And so our system will do that whether we want it to or not. We don't have conscious control over that decision. And this is where I'm now talking about the polyvagal theory. So for those in your audience who may know about Dr. Stephen Porges and the polyvagal theory, this is where that comes into play. And so now our system goes from high energy, sympathetic state to the polyvagal theory, that dorsal vagal response, and it just shuts everything down. You can feel that, you can feel that overwhelm. A person, when they have that moment, there's a heaviness that comes over them. There's that feeling of like a brick in your stomach or the knife twisting in your gut that just leads you to, to crumble over and want to protect your stomach. Any of those felt sensations in your body is a trauma response. You had a trauma response in that moment. Because if you stayed in sympathetic, you're going to stay upright. You're going to be fighting. You're going to be actively responding. Whereas this trauma response always involves this feeling of this collapse, this letdown, this, I just, I just, this is too much. This is too much too fast or I can't take anymore. This has been going on for too long. I've had too little for too long. Those are the two responses that, or I should say experiences that trigger the trauma response and that results in being a trauma for a person rather than just a stress. 
And what happens when that person has experienced, I have a lot of questions, but I want to come back to, you said one of the challenges that people have is they're just like, let's just throw love at the trauma situation. That's just like, let's just, you know, thank you very much, Dr. So-and-so for saying they've had a traumatic experience. We'll go home and take it from here and just like, we'll just fix it with love. Like what happens? Why is that actually? Because I know a lot of people were stopping when you said that. I'm like, what? I suspect it's probably just don't do that in isolation. But like, what is the challenge with that being the approach to the management of trauma versus maybe someone who just needs a little bit of TLC. So this is where it starts to depend on the type of trauma because the first principle for coming out of that trauma response is that the freeze response needs time and energy. <laughs> and when when I look at our world today, especially when I look at my fellow entrepreneurs, we don't give ourselves the time. We don't have time. No. It's it's always just kind of like that that feels like it it would take too much of my energy, it would take too much of my time to even just let myself go there. So I, I can't I can't even let myself go there. And just because of how our culture is based on productivity and the time pressures on us, the busyness that our lives have become. There is no time. So to illustrate this, let me share a story with you. And this can be anybody's story. This could be anybody's story. But I'm walking my dog. And I'm walking my dog in an area where there's very few cars and I have her off leash and we're, we're crossing the street to a park. And just in that moment, we're crossing the street and here pulls up this car to the intersection. And they start pulling into the crosswalk where my where me and my dog are and they seem to be oblivious to the fact that there's a dog that they're about to hit. I go into full-blown sympathetic, here's my threat, here's my danger, right? And whatever happens, right? Whatever happens is whatever happens, but at the end of that, what would be the natural response for most people? It's just like, well, let's let's go on with our walk. My dog, my dog it was not hit. All was fine. I was able to, you know, have that woof, like full swing of the emotions. But then we just move on. We we we've got our walk because we've got to get back home because we've got this to do because we've got that to do. I've have, I've got a meeting, and yet what the system needs is time. And so, if a person were in that moment, and there's many types of moments that happen like this in our life, but if we just take that moment to pause and sit and let whatever come up come up what we would find is that our body would start to shake and tremble uh, because it's like releasing all of this adrenaline that just got released from our pituitary and our adrenal glands and all of all of this biochemistry that's happening internally. And it has to have an outlet, but we don't give it that time because we're we're always rushed. And so the freeze response needs time. Now, thankfully it is on a on a timetable. So kind of like when you see animals, like an opossum, right? Like you think of an opossum and them going into their freeze response, they will wake up. They don't, they don't need someone to go over and shake them. And actually that would probably linger for them. But there is this time element to the freeze response, but then it also needs energy. And as long as we still have some biology, some physiology that's compromising our energy, ah, we're going to get pulled into that more and more. I mean, where is love in that? Love actually has nothing to do with that piece of it. Love comes next. So then once our system comes out of that freeze response, now it's actually back up in the sympathetic. 
It doesn't go into parasympathetic. If we've got, especially this chronic freeze, we go from freeze back into what put us into the freeze, which is that high, intense, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm going to survive. Okay, then we're just going to shut down in order to survive. And so we go into this really high anxiety state. And that is where we need safety. That's when we need safety. We need support because if we don't have that, our system is going to go right back into the freeze response because it's going to feel too much again. And so for some people, that is where love can come in. However, what if love is what is scary for you? What if intimacy? What if authenticity? is what is scary for you. Well, then we've got you going right back into this collapse and guarded and self-protection and freeze response. And so this is where many people don't understand what it actually means to feel safe. We have associated love with safety. And yet for most people, Megan, because of the insecure attachments that we have coming out of our childhood, an element of love and intimacy, connection is actually what is scary for us. And so we, we guard ourselves against that. We, we, we don't even let it in. I want to get into what you call the pandemic of insecure attachment. I know there's a whole bunch of people listening. They're like, okay, all right, fair. I've got, I've got some trauma. I know what it is, or I don't know what it is, but I know, like, I know it's in there. What's our goal in the next steps? Is it integration of that trauma, acknowledgement of that trauma, safety? Like, what are we wanting to do with that trauma now that we're all aware that there is this, there's this thing, this entity in our lives that is having some element of impact? Again, kind of like I disagree with, with some of what's being done with trauma work is because for many for many, it seems that the goal is just compassion. Let's just have compassion for all of us who have had trauma. And me as a, you know, a scientist, a biochemist at heart, I'm like, no, <laughs> hell no. Compassion? No, like I want to change this. I don't, I don't want to see myself continuing to act things out that I know are coming from a hurt place. I know are coming from a trauma place. Like, I don't like those things about myself. And yes, I can have compassion because now I understand it, but I don't want to stay there. I actually want to move into, okay, and how do I become a better person? Not just a better person, Megan, but how do I become the best version of myself? Is it a matter of how do I leverage that, that trauma as a lesson? Even, even that, even that would be fine. But Trauma will result in us continuing to live our life with coping mechanisms. And whether those coping mechanisms are overworking, overexercising, overeating, undereating, or what we're choosing to eat, or in our relationships, are we avoiding some types of relationships? Are we avoiding some types of conversations because we feel they're too awkward? Whatever it is, or are we holding on to people too tight? All of these outcomes and behaviors that we can see patterns in our life, those are all the result of these types of trauma patterns in our nervous system. And time does not change those. Mm -hmm. Time does not heal trauma. Say that again for the listeners in the back. Time does not heal trauma. 
And that has been a big misunderstanding as well is because we will go through hard times and we're like, oh, I just need time. Well, no, how are you using that time? If you're using the time to just let it integrate more into your system, all you've done is cement those patterns and that experience deeper into your system. And now they've become so ingrained in you that you just think this is your personality. You you just think this is who you are now. And that is not true. That is who you are having adapted to a life experience that is still driving you today. And it's not only driving your behaviors, but it's driving your physical health and your mental health. How do we move past the trauma if it's not just talking about it? And I would say like, that's, that's actually not the place to start at all. The place to start is actually being able to understand the nervous system. This is where we can be really simple and we can learn some really very simple basic skills that I think should just be taught to kids in elementary school because they're that foundational to life. And it's like, this is your manual for the human body. (laughs) In today's world where you are going to experience trauma, that is part of our life, that is part of our world. It's just a matter of when and how. Does everyone experience trauma? Everyone, Megan. Okay. So no one is excluded from this episode. <laughs> that is true. I mean, can you think of someone who is who can go through life and and experience only stress but not have those moments of okay, that was too much too fast. Okay, right. That's been going on for too long. I've I, I can't take it anymore. I'm I'm kind of shutting down. I can think of only a few people who I have ever met who have a secure attachment style. And I would say possibly for them, they may not have experienced trauma because their nervous system is designed to operate very differently. Their, their nervous system is designed to operate from a place of security. And so they, they may have only experienced different degrees of stress and not true trauma, but those are so few people, Megan. Yeah. So few people. We need to be able to, to, to see it, but understand it in a way that will lead us to be able to change it. And so where I start people is being able to understand, first of all, just understand these three different states of the nervous system and understand them in an experiential way so that a person knows what it feels like to be in sympathetic. They know what it feels like when they are in freeze response. And then they know what it feels like to be in parasympathetic. So that at any given moment, I can ask them, hey, where's your system at right now? And they would be able to tell me, well, I'm actually in shutdown and freeze right now. Okay, that's good to know because then that informs me on how I can interact with you right now in a way that will be supportive to that rather than just overwhelm you more and actually result in us not connecting because you're not available. You're not really here. Your system is shut down. So again, like the, I think this is just like your basic manual for the human body and our survival system that we need, we need to understand. And so then once we have that, now we can learn how to shift that. Okay. So if you are in sympathetic, if you are in freeze, how can you shift that to parasympathetic? And it's actually some very basic, simple skills. This is where I pull in a lot of my training from somatic experiencing. And so where where some people might go into, well, I want you to take some deep breaths. I actually don't say that. I say, if you're not taking deep breaths, that means you're in 
sympathetic or freeze response, likely freeze response. And let's just use that as a measure to track your system. And so as we do these other things, did you notice that your breath just got deeper? Did you notice that you just took a deep, spontaneous breath? That's how we track and measure that your system has now shifted more towards parasympathetic. Whereas when we do breathing exercises and breath work, we've lost the ability to track that with the breath. We have to track it through other measures that are harder. It's just harder for people. But there are some very basic skills that are movement-based, that are embodied-based, that are somatic-based, not knowledge-based, not our heads, because certainly for those of us who are entrepreneurs, that's where we excel. We love to be in our heads. And it's often, you know, for those going through my courses, especially that first 21-day journey, which is a, a journey into their nervous system, that is the most common feedback that I get from them. And these are entrepreneur women, some of them in their 60s. They will come back shocked and they'll be like, I had no idea that I was this disconnected from my body. Like, I didn't even know that I was disconnected. Even with my patients, I would say, how are you feeling about this? And they're like, I think I feel, I'm like, huh. Like they, they literally, <laughs> yeah. my cognitive interpretation of my current feelings <laughs> is this. Right. Yeah, we're super, we're super disconnected from that. It is inconvenient. And don't even know that we are con- disconnected. Mm-hmm. So for me, rather than showing them that they are disconnected and trying to explain that to them, because again, explaining, I'm still just in their head. I'm going to have them do some specific movements and exercises that then will result in them becoming connected. And as a result of that, now they have the awareness that they have been disconnected. And so this is where I come back, Megan, and I say, let's not talk. Let's just do. And where many people get hurt in the process of their healing journey around trauma is talking about it, you know, and they'll talk to their girlfriends about it. They'll talk to They'll, they'll do lots of talking. They'll talk to a therapist about it. And yet it's still all up here in the head and it's not dropping into the body, which is for a reason. Because when we experience trauma, those are very uncomfortable sensations that happen in the body. And so our nervous system unconsciously, but intentionally disconnects us from those uncomfortable sensations because it sees that as a threat to our survival. And so now it's not only the threat of what's outside of us, our nervous system starts to see ourselves and our own felt sensations as a threat to our survival that needs to be cut off because if we were to feel those, it would be too much. How fascinating, right? Because now we are, we're walking around with our own biggest danger inside of us. How is trauma stored in the body? Trauma is stored in the nervous system. And then the nervous system impacts all the other systems. And so for many people, again, kind of we've, we've thought, we've had this understanding that trauma is stored in the brain. And the brain is, is the central nervous system. But you actually have this thing called the autonomic nervous system that runs your body, runs your breathing, runs your lungs. And it's intended, its whole purpose is to keep you alive. That's why it runs those things, runs those systems. And so that's the system that will decide when something is an event that you can respond to, like a stress, 
or when something is overwhelming and it makes that decision. Your brain doesn't make that decision. It's your autonomic nervous system that really makes that decision of we've got to shut down in order to survive. Our brain, its purpose in trauma is to make meaning of what we did. It creates a story and a rationale that feels logical to us. But at the end of the day, that may not have actually been what happened at all. But our brain needs to make meaning of things. It needs to understand things. And so that's why there's not much utility in going over the story because the brain doesn't have the whole story. Is there a a gender bias to one's capacity to manage and integrate trauma? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's been very, very interesting to see that because... We've got different challenges that come up. So for the men, the challenge is, you know, like feelings. No, don't. I I don't think I've, I've, I've had one of those before. Like what, what, what are those? And so there's, there's that, there's that challenge, right? Like they, they are much more. um, They're socialized differently around feelings. Very much so. Very much so. And yet you can see it in how they carry their their body you can see it in their posture because that's also how trauma will present itself the nerves run your muscles and so you'll develop bracing patterns that actually help protect you against body sensations that are uncomfortable and you can see that you can see that but they they may have a harder time being willing to go there but again also because they have this misunderstanding that they're going to have to talk about their feelings And I'm coming around and saying, no, like we actually don't talk. We're just going to do. And so I feel like if, if they, if they knew that there was just more action that could be done, then they may not be as hesitant to, to go there. But I think that they also are brought up with the mentality that they are strong and need to just push through things and that they do have that ability to push through things. And that's, and that's how they overcome. And not realizing that the more trauma they experience, the more of a burden they are carrying and it gets heavier and heavier. And so even though they think they are performing at their best, they don't realize that they have these things that are draining their performance. So that's the challenges with men. Then the challenges with women, women are are much more able to kind of access those types of feelings in general, but then that's where they get stuck, right? Because then they just want to talk about it. They want to stay in those feelings rather than being able to move through them and process them and actually get to something better. They, they often think that the way through them is to, let me just talk it out with you. You know, can we, can we meet over coffee and let me just share all of my problems with you and talk this through with you? And it's like, well, that's not going to work though. And what happens with that is that, again, like those experiences just get cemented further into the nervous system. And so we will continue to react in the future as if we were still reacting to this same situation. And so for the women, that's, that is their challenge is the, the emotions and wanting to, to talk, talk and talk and talk about the emotions and the story uh, rather than actually just moving, moving to action. When you talk about this idea, and I'm coming back to it, this pandemic of insecure attachment, what is it and what does it have to do with our ability to move through trauma? Man, like you're asking all the the big questions today, Megan. 
each of these would is like a whole three, four week course. <laughs> I'm painfully aware of that. But here's the thing. I'm just, I, I will let, I'm just going to like sneak preview this for everybody. Amy, she's good at many things. One of the things she's really good at is, is giving people access to information as they, as they need it. She has uh, run a, uh, a trauma-based summit in the past, and she's got another one coming out where you're going to be able to go deeper on all these these subject matters. And so I feel like I'm kind of I'm peppering you with things because I want to introduce these really compelling topics because I feel like so many people have this narrative of what trauma is. It's not me; it's other people, and I'm moving on. And what I'm I'm really trying to do is I'm obsessed with this idea of you know people opt themselves out. Yeah, I want to cover the basis because I think this subject matter is so important, and I need people to opt themselves in. Because it's ultimately going to be what contributes to their growth and their healing and, and all of the things we're really after. So I continue to pepper you with the broad, <laughs> sweeping flow of trauma-based questions. And that brings us to the pandemic of insecure attachment. Oh, you know, in, in two minutes, tell me the meaning of life. Can you do that too? <laughs> we'll do that in the rapid fire questions at the end. <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> in 30 seconds or less, what is the meaning of life? I actually have an answer for that. So I'll, I'll be ready for that question. <laughs> All right. So the pandemic of insecure attachment. One of the big misunderstandings around trauma is that it is an event that you can remember. And. Ooh, this is a three week course. Totally. No, and I actually just got done with my whole three-week course on attachment and neurodevelopment. Phenomenal, Megan. Like the amount of insights that people are walking away with in terms of their nervous system and all of these things that happened in their childhood that were gaps that they didn't even recognize were gaps or recognize the impact that it would have on their life. It's huge. It's enormous. It's it really is like opening Pandora's box. Like you think it's just this little box that you're opening and then you realize, oh my goodness, no, it's like this <laughs> whole cave. As half the listeners are like, forget it. We're not doing trauma. <laughs> <laughs> now this, so this is really cool though, because Megan, there are so many things that we can do as adults to change the insecure attachment patterns wired into our nervous system. So it's one of my favorite things to talk about because we have tools at any age. I even have 70-year-olds who are doing these exercises. It's so cool what they're learning and what they're experiencing. And, and I'll just give a little teaser that what is often the first step for people as adults, getting on their tummy and figuring out how to move across, move, just move on the floor, keeping their belly button on the floor. And when they do that, I can tell you everything about your insecure attachment. Stop it. I'm not joking. I can tell you so much about your life when you get on the floor, you lay on the floor, and then you just figure out how to move, how to scoot your body down the floor, keeping your belly button on the floor. That's the only rule that I have. Keep your belly button on the floor. I can tell you everything about your first year of life. I am laughing here because we started this conversation before we hit play about like how we're like randomly hooked up to IVs and you know, you're at a functional <laughs> medicine conference when like doctors are lying on the floor and other people are adjusting them. Like it's just not normal, like corporate event, you know, <laughs> right. comportment. And then here you are, you're like, and next time I see you at your conference, you're just going to get down on the floor and you're going to like move with your belly. And I, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to that moment because it, and no one will bat an eye at it. 
Only if you want me to tell you everything that you need to know about your first year of life, Megan. Well, I almost want to move the camera now and see what happens. But okay. So, <laughs> me too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Who knew this interview went viral? All about how do you save the world of trauma? You get everyone on their belly buttons and you film yes. it. Um, okay. Yeah. So why? Why is that? Why can you tell so much from that experience? Because one's attachment is based off of a, a number of factors coming in. That includes your genetics, your epigenetics, your neurodevelopment, which includes specific movements that you are programmed to do as a baby that you will do if you're not inhibited, and then the actual relationship and dynamics with your birth mom. All of that goes into attachment. Holy smokes. Most people just think of attachment as, oh, your relationship with your primary caregiver. Oh my, that is such a small vision of attachment. Wow. It is so much more than that. And one's attachment style is actually already established by six months of age. And people want to say, oh, you know, it's by the time you're three, four. No, if you're looking at it by age three or four, you are measuring attachment by behaviors that are the outcome, that are the result of your attachment style. We can measure this by six months of age. And and if we're really looking at other stuff, we can measure it by four months of age. This is where most people, Megan, are coming out of their childhood with an insecure attachment that we can measure not only off of their belief system about themselves, how they view themselves, how they view the world, but their nervous system and the patterns that are in their nervous system into adulthood because this becomes your nervous system. Attachment becomes your nervous system. And so attachment is not something where you had to have had abuse or neglect to have an insecure attachment. You just have needed to have enough gaps in your genetics or your epigenetics or your neurodevelopment, or maybe, maybe you didn't get enough tummy time. Maybe your mom, you know, put you in one of those things that helped you bounce up and down, but you weren't able to move in other ways. Those types of things, very good parents, and yet just not knowing all that is required to have a healthy, secure attachment and neurodevelopment resulted in an insecure attachment being the foundation for your whole nervous system. So yes, get on the floor and I can tell you everything about your nervous system and what to do about it. This is going to be an exciting reunion between you and I in the fall. I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait. I cannot wait for this piece. What's the relationship between resilience and trauma? Let's just dovetail off of what we just learned then about attachment. And let's take an example of someone who's going into the military. And they are going into very stressful environments, right? Mm -hmm. What is their nervous system? What is the state of their nervous system going into those environments? If they have a secure attachment, If they have a nervous system that is wired to feel secure, to feel safe, to reach out and connect with others in a community, to be able to share when they're not feeling safe or to share and be authentic and have that laughter and and truly connect with people in a way that they feel, they they feel connected with other people, they are going to be resilient and they are not the ones who come back with PTSD. But you take someone whose nervous system is wired to feel insecure in the world. 
and you put them into an environment or a situation, how is their nervous system going to respond? On a cellular level, their nervous system is already programmed to react in such a way that compounds the trauma that is already stored in their nervous system. And so then you do, like you have this breaking point where it's like, okay, and now we actually have a diagnosis of bipolar. Now we actually have a diagnosis of PTSD. Now we actually have a diagnosis of ADHD. Now we actually have a diagnosis of cancer, of autoimmune. Why? Because the nervous system went into life already feeling insecure. On a cellular level, it was already wired with trauma, wired into that. For me, like this is where there is so much that we can do because our life is going to have more trauma. We are going to experience more situations in our life that are very hard. I just think of even the last two years, right? And the last two years has unveiled the underlying trauma that was stored in people's nervous systems that then came out in huge ways when they weren't able to now socialize and now they were experiencing isolation. You know, what were the coping mechanisms that they reached for? The number of alcohol sales was astronomical. The weight gain, right? Like if you, if you, COVID pounds actually became a terminology that was, that was used among many. And we can see from those examples that, wait a second, this was just a sign that the nervous system was already affected. The nervous system was already coping with trauma patterns wired into it. And those situations just unveiled more of that. And so it really is, this resilience piece is all about how do we optimize our nervous system now so that no matter what we go through in the future, we are setting ourselves up for success and experiencing it as a stress and it not becoming just one more trauma for us, which is why I'm hooked up to an IV right now. And right now I'm doing IV NAD. See, I was being subtle. I wasn't trying to tell our listeners you are currently hooked up to an <laughs> IV. But now that you have completely disclosed. Just, uh, just disclosed that. Yeah. It's okay. I'm but literally sitting in a... one of the tools that I have. It's one of... Exactly. I'm like, I was just going to say... one of many tools. One of many tools yes. that I have for me to build my cellular resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sitting. When I can improve my mitochondria, I have improved the state of my nervous system going into my day because I knew that talking with Dr. Megan Walker would could be traumatic for me. It could be. People right? say that. Yeah. People say that. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. knowing this, you know, knowing this about you and, and this experience, like how can I build my cellular resilience in order to experience this just as a stress and not as a trauma? right? Because then I would have to send you the invoice for all the years of therapy that I would need after this hour with you, right? And so no, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's You got in front of it. Yeah. I I totally prevented this by hooking myself up to an IV so that I could be building my cellular resilience going into my experience with you, girl. Well, you know, I wish more of my guests were actually took (laughs) this much responsibility for their own physical and mental health (laughs) after an encounter with me. Um, because a lot of lives would be, a lot of lives would be saved. This is a perfect place to transition uh, to something I call our impact ingredients. They are intentioned to be a series of rapid fire questions. And I've been testing new questions lately because my first round of questions were not deep. 
I mean, they were very deep and they were like a whole interview in and of themselves. So um, I'm, I'm just, I, we're like, we're just constantly trying new things. So get your nervous system primed. Yeah, I can see how that, that probably was the traumatic. It was, event it was. Many of your yes, yeah, totally. This is it. This is it. Okay. I'm okay. ready. If you are not doing what you're doing right now and you can't go backwards and, and redo medicine, what other career could you see yourself have equally chosen to pursue? Oh, the uh, librarian. Didn't see that. Okay, this is going to be fun. What is a what is an interesting or compelling skill or talent that you possess that other people might not know? I am one of the fastest women road bikers, cyclists in my area. I love speed. And so when I go out, like that is my measure of success is how fast can I get? Can I get up to 50 miles per hour on my road bike today? Oh, I like hitting that 52. It's like a bit of a thrill. Like, will I die or will I make it? But mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to belly button dance and cycle next time (laughs) we're hanging out at an event uh, together. What's a non-negotiable for you in your life? Something you will draw a hard line on for me. It's karaoke Uh, for you. You might have something else. Okra. I will not Mm -hmm. eat okra. That's a hard line for me. Uh Yeah. Fair enough. Entrepreneurship. Are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? Both. I would say that most entrepreneurs are undermethylators and so they are born this way. Fair. But there is a learning experience to it. And so we are learning, but it's it's building on that entrepreneur that's uh stuff that's in our DNA because we are undermethylated. Ooh, podcast number two. I want to do a study with your audience. I want to test everybody in your audience for their methylation status. And everyone in my audience is like, yes, as I, if I can dance on my belly button in front of you, I will be part of your <laughs> I'll be part of your study, Dr. Amy. Last question yeah. for you. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? I want my legacy of impact to be that transformation. For me, it's, I mean, I want to go back to a very specific memory that I have when I was doing in-person family challenge camps and working with other families who had either adopted or their children had been through significant stress and trauma and it was resulting in significant behaviors, even things like their children had to go to the NICU when they were born, right? And now they're, they're dealing with trust and attachment issues. And to see these kids who up until then had been so, so afraid of connecting and unable to connect, and then being able to stand stand back and watch that transformation happen and watch, see that hug and that child just melt into their arms now and say those words of, I love you and, and mean it and feel it. And, you know, I'm not even in that, but I'm standing back and being like, I had a part in that. For me, like that kind of transformation is, is everything to me. Now, it's that kind of transformation that, that adults can have with themselves, right? But it's, it's that quality of transformation in their life that I haven't just changed something superficial in their life. You know, I haven't just given them a new, a new color for their lipstick or, you know, whatever. Like this is, this is heart stuff. This is core stuff. 
Dr. Amy Apigian, you are amazing. I love the work that you are are doing. I wish we could sit here for another four or five hours, but I'm going to be the first one from my community to sign up for your upcoming summit. Where can we send people to learn more about the uh, the summit? Tell us a little bit about what uh, they have in store and how we can follow along in your journey. Yeah. So I got this Biology of Trauma Summit. This is the second annual Biology of Trauma Summit 2.0. And this year, I am going beyond the diagnoses. And so what is actually behind the diagnosis? And, and it's not just mental health. It's also physical health. What's behind the diagnosis of an autoimmune condition? There is trauma in the nervous system behind every person who's been diagnosed with these types of chronic diseases, cancer, autoimmune, gut issues, adrenal fatigue, all of this stuff. And so really being able to give people a deeper understanding so that they have tools, different tools that they have not had up until now to be able to address whatever is going on in their life, whether it's just a symptom or diagnosis, or if they're a professional and here to learn about how to better help and serve their people, their clients, their patients. I have over 40 speakers, so it's going to be a lot. And I also have experiential workshops built into the summit so that they will have an opportunity to actually have a very live interactive experience and it not just be all head knowledge, because if you've heard anything that I've said in this (laughs) whole interview, it's not head knowledge. It has to be an experience that then change changes us. And so bringing in so many, so many speakers. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be one of those things where it's like, all right, you know, put your seatbelt on because we're blasting off with the number of speakers and the depth to which we go into these interviews. But I felt that was really necessary for people to get a a breadth of understanding of all of the different types of tools that they have available to them. And then being able to point them to the 21 day journey, which is their journey into their nervous system that I will be leading and where I will be encouraging them to start their journey. And then from there, we can apply whatever other tools are the best ones for them that we can help them figure out. But we've got to get them on this journey into their nervous system in a safe way first. So that's what they have in store for them for this Biology of Trauma Summit. Well, anyone can register for the Biology of Trauma Summit. You're going to head over to our show notes, which are just at meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. And everything you need to know is there. Dr. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Megan. And just really appreciate and honor what you are doing in the world and, and the work that you have done on yourself to grow and be seen and be uh, having such an impact on people's lives. Oh, thank you, friend. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.